Uh, we're certainly seeing prices that are causing all of us in the analyst community to kind of reassess what potential looks like for these markets, uh, not just for the rest of this year, but certainly the next several years. That is Lance Zimmerman, Senior Beef and Cattle Market Research Analyst for Bank. This is Rural Roots Canada, and I'm Craig Lester, Amplifying Canadian Agriculture. In this episode, Zimmerman comments on the explosive cattle market trends we have seen in the first half of the year, why it is happening, the shrinking herds in Canada and the U.S., and what producers can expect this fall. Lance, thanks so much for, for joining us uh, this afternoon. I guess what we'll start off with here is just tell us a little bit about the excitement around Rabobank uh, venturing up I- into Canada and what what you see in the, the Canadian livestock sector. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, Rabobank uh, has always had a, a presence in Canada for decades, um, but it's always existed on kind of the business banking side of the company, as we would call it internally, the wholesale side of our bank. And so to venture into the rural business platform and roll that out to uh, cattle producers, farmers, and other agricultural producers throughout um Canada is really exciting for us. Obviously, um, the agricultural routes in Canada run very deep as they do within Rabobank as a whole. And so to be able to bring those products and services to uh, our rural partners uh, in Canada is really exciting. Um, We've always had a good presence there in the food and ag space. To get it all the way down to the boots that are on the ground and doing the work excites us. And I think it's excited Canadian producers as well. We've had a lot of interest. Uh, I've had the chance to be up there earlier this year, and there was a lot of excitement uh, around Rabobank being in the market. And we look forward to partnering with producers going forward um, in this new venture that we're, we're working through. Well, I'm sure a lot of cattle producers, I know I was just at a lunch sort of thing where we were discussing the cattle prices right now and what the markets are doing. And as a producer myself, you know, it's been some interesting times recently. What have you been seeing what's been going on and, and where do you see things heading? Yeah, you know, one of the things that's been just absolutely explosive um, when you look at the market trend that Canadian producers have seen over the course of the first half of this year, uh, and in a lot of respects, the upward trend that's um, happening in Canada is very much happening in the United States, too, as those two markets are very intertwined with each other. And so uh, it's a reflection of the, the declines that have happened in the North American cattle herd over the last several years. Um, that speaks very very loudly to obviously Canadian producers and U.S. producers alike. Uh, Mexico kind of stands in contrast, even though they would have the smaller beef cow herd of the three North American countries where their herd has grown consistently over the last several years. Um, That's not been the case in the U.S. and Canada. And so the tighter supplies met with still exceptionally good beef demand uh, has allowed uh, market prices, whether it's for for five-weight calves, more yearling-type calves, or fed cattle to really explode uh, this year and and I think even exceed perhaps uh, the most optimistic uh, forecasts as we were coming into 2023. Looking at it now, uh, we're certainly seeing prices that are causing all of us in the analyst community to kind of reassess what potential looks like for these markets, uh, not just for the rest of this year, but certainly the next several years. You, you were talking about the the the, na- the national herd numbers there, and I understand the the herd numbers for the U.S. herd just came out just in the past week here. Uh, that coupled with what we're kind of seeing in regards to 
um, crop situations. I know up here in Canada, we are looking at some drought-like conditions. What kind of situation does that set up with uh, on, on both sides? Yeah, you know, drought, as much as we would all like to put drought behind us, um, it, it's still a reality. And as you look at it, uh, you mentioned Canada, they're still battling drought in key producing areas. Uh, in the United States, what we've seen over the last several years is that drought has made a, a Western migration to Eastern migration over the last several years. It started on the coast in the Pacific Northwest, moved into the Central Plains last year. Uh, it's still very active in the Central Plains, but it's working its way through the Corn Belt and the Great Lakes region here in the United States. And as a result, uh, you hit the nail on the head. It's certainly threatening crop conditions. As we look at the crop condition index for corn, uh, it held steady in the latest week, which was a small victory in and of itself. Our, our pasture condition index, honestly, in the United States has made a really good improvement uh, throughout the course of the year. Uh, the challenge is, while it's back at a 10-year average, still about 35% of the U.S beef cow herd is still in some level of moderate to extreme drought. Um, cow herd liquidation, we're still seeing culling rates around 11%, very much indicative of cow herd contractions still. Um, and I think a lot of producers, while they're seeing pasture conditions improve, still though struggling with pasture water conditions and just really a lot of folks in the Central Plains are saying, hey, we're, we're one week away of hot, windy weather of being in a really bad place again in, in parts of the country that are major grazing and cow-calf country, uh, it's causing folks to, to look at the market prices and the explosiveness that we've seen with a little bit of hesitation because they're still not sitting with a great hay inventory or pasture uh, inventory around them to feel confident that they could rebuild the cow herd uh, starting next year. You mentioned earlier in regards to the demand for beef and cattle going on right now in the market. Uh, what's the, the key drivers behind that that demand one of the things that we're seeing uh, in regard to demand is as we came out of the pandemic one of the discussions you heard often among market participants is we still don't knew, know with certainty what what normal is you know we we know what normal was pre-pandemic but what is normal post-pandemic and we're still sifting through that you know, as we enter 2023, we recognize the challenges with inflation. We recognize the how it undermines consumer incomes and that we're certainly stressing the consumer more today than we have uh, at any time since the pandemic. Uh, and as we put those financial stressors on consumers, those headwinds still exist. But what we're recognizing is um, beef demand is holding up surprisingly well in light of as we come out of this pandemic, the millennials or the chief buying demographic, the chief spending demographic that exists around the globe today. And as that happens, millennials are much more um, in favor of, of small perks, uh, of small surprises, of small splurges. Uh, they enjoy social occasions. They enjoy food. Um, and coming out of the pandemic, one of the new normals that we have to get used to is a lot of folks bought barbecue grills and smokers and flat top griddles and air fryers and all these uh, neat gadgets that I think really favor into beef demand holding together very well. The other thing that we realize is the pandemic changed a lot of consumer expectations on what the price of beef is. 
steak is expensive. We get that. Uh, but a lot of times I like to say steak is, is kind of expensive, but worth it. Uh, a lot of times you can argue that about the beef category as a whole. Uh, but what's interesting is during the pandemic, consumers were paying $6 for briskets and maybe upwards of 6 $7 a pound for ground beef. And a lot of those prices have come back down to where today, maybe a 450 brisket is still expensive historically, but compared to what that consumer paid during the pandemic to put on his brand new smoker, his or her new smoker, uh, it's a bargain. And so I think you're seeing some underpinning of demand in perhaps some areas that uh, normally would be considered price stressors to the market. As we head into the out of the summer and into the fall months and we hear words of uh, where producers are, are kind of in a situation where they have to make a decision on calling. Is there any, I guess, um, advice you can give to producers in regards to what they should be looking at in terms of indicators come come next year when they might be taking uh, calves to, um, to to market? Yeah. You know, one of the things we're seeing with a lot of the summer video auction markets, and this will be in U.S. dollars, so I, I apologize to have to put the burden on your listeners for a conversion factor. But essentially, you know, we're looking at a marketplace that's willing to pay um, producers for fall weaned calves now on summer video auction markets around $3 a pound U.S. basis. Um when you look at the feeder cattle futures contract, which I know is very much a, a market that your producers watch regularly, it's valued for that early winter period around $2.50 a pound. And so you take that five-weight calf versus at $3 a pound versus that eight-weight calf at two fifty. The market's essentially willing to pay a producer $500 a head to put 300 pounds on that calf. Uh, that that equates to a break even cost of gain around a buck sixty six a pound. Most producers would tell you today they can they can make that work. They can pencil that. The challenge comes back to that drought question we had earlier, and that while I can do it, should I? Instead, should I be warehousing hay in case things turn dry again as we look toward next year. And so one of the recommendations I'm telling producers is fall weaning approaches as we have cow herds that that need to get into a rebuilding mode and producers that certainly don't want to leave dollars on the table longer run is that maybe you don't retain ownership in all the calves in a backgrounding situation. But certainly with the market incentives that exist, you could afford to hold the heifers back and sell the steer mates at weaning and then as you get to winter if long-run forecasts start transitioning towards the the idea of a drier spring and summer sell the heifers as feeder heifers and, and move on but if the forecast continues to look more optimistic going forward for the next several years and be supportive of herd rebuilding uh, you've, you've got a foot in the door with some heifers that are ready to develop as as herd replacements and, and breed that coming spring for the next year and so i think that'll be a good thing to watch going forward and i'm certain that as we transition to fall there's going to be areas of the country where they'll have resources to do that whether it's very widespread across the u.s and canada will remain to be seen that's great advice thanks for that lance anything you'd like to add that i haven't asked you no, I think you know one of the things that I continue to tell producers is we have seen an unprecedented amount of volatility over the last 10 years. Be that prices, be it trade activity, be it a pandemic, be it drought. Um, 
that's not going to change going forward. And so what that means for us is even though the volatility may come with more opportunity going forward as prices work higher and hopefully drought becomes less of a concern, uh, our risk in our operations won't change. It'll remain elevated. So continue to look at ways to have a good business plan, have a sound business plan that can weather some of these storms that we've been dealt over the past 10 years because there's likely more to come in the 10 years that follow. Manage the business plan, manage the risk of production and price that's around you, and we can enjoy these next 10 years and find opportunities to prosper even amid the chaos. And quickly here, because you mentioned the word trade, uh, and one of the key questions I wanted to ask you is in regards to uh, the situation in regards to Canada looking at bringing in uh, the UK into their uh, Pacific trade deal. Does that affect yes. the producer at all? Is there produ anything producers should be aware of at this point? I think it's a fascinating discussion. Anytime you have uh, government politics involved in trade opportunity, obviously uh, the United Kingdom market has been an elusive one, not only to Canadian producers, but also U.S. producers. Uh, that European market as a whole has always been a difficult one for North American producers to get access to. And so, yeah, the big news is that the U.K. Uh, formally signed their treaty to join the CP. TPP, uh, say that five times fast, right? <laughs> um, but the, the challenge now is their own government has to ratify the agreement. Parliament's going to get involved. And so it's not a, a slam dunk that it's going to get through the UK. But then even once it does, the rest of the CPTPP members, including Canada, need to approve it. And so as we look at it, the Canadian uh, meat and livestock industries, they're, they're voicing their displeasure with the agreement. And essentially, from a beef standpoint, UK beef imports over the last 10 years have been around 340,000 metric tons. Not a massive market, especially when you consider that Ireland takes about 65% of that volume as a neighbor. Brazil is the second largest participant in that market, and they have about 8% penetration. Then you have about 11 other European countries that take about 23% market share before you get to countries like Argentina, New Zealand, and Australia, who get to fight for about 1% to 2% market share on average. Now, I mentioned Australia and New Zealand because they are in the midst of working out their own free trade agreements with the UK. And I think that's what's really important, that they're sitting here today they're negotiating their own more favorable tariff rate quotas. And if those go into force um, going forward, what it's going to mean is Canada and the other CPTPP members will have to fight for this very small duty-free tariff rate quota amongst themselves. And it's tapped out at 13,000 metric tons by year 10. And so it's a very small piece of the pie left for Canadian producers afterwards. We can debate what the potential of that market ultimately would be, but it's certainly far from fair for Canadian producers. And even more than that, I think that the Canadian uh, livestock and meat industries are just very frustrated um, that in a lot of respects, the UK continues to um, – downgrade what Canadians' food safety and animal health standards are in the global trade community. And I think that that's something that all North American producers can rally around, is the idea that we want a level playing field. 
And so I think between the free trade agreements with Australia and New Zealand, between some of the, the unwillingness from UK to accept Canada's standards at the same level of other global beef producing nations uh, is certainly reason for concern. And I think uh, a fight worth continuing uh, to push as you navigate through uh, that partnership and that agreement that exists among those countries. Thanks to Lance Zimmerman from Rabobank for taking time to discuss the beef markets. For Rural Roots Canada, I'm Craig Lester, amplifying Canadian agriculture.